if somebody's buying our stuff just because it's local, um, I'd rather they were buying something that they liked more. I want them buying it because it tastes like nothing else. And I, my hope is that um, other craft distillers that are out there are making stuff because they have something to say. They have something new to express, not because they, they say, this is a category that works. This is a flavor profile that's safe. I'm going to jump into that safe profile. You know, get out there and express yourself and do something new and, and do something, something that's you. Uh, that's the important thing. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, Driven to Innovate. Our guest is Lance Winters, master distiller and president of St. George Spirits in Alameda, California. The distillery was founded in 1982 by Jörg Rupf, who's considered by many as the godfather of craft distilling in America, and Lance joined the team in 1996. What started as a distillery devoted to eau de vie eventually branched out to make Hanger One Vodka, Absinthe, Gin, Whiskey, and more. After the 2010 sale of Hanger One to Proximo Spirits, Rupf retired and Winters assumed majority ownership of St. George. In early February, Lance spoke to Editor-in-Chief Jeff Cialetti via Zoom, and he was just shy of hitting a milestone. It is exactly 24 years and 51 weeks since, uh, since the day that I started at St. George. So, oh, so, uh, so this will be running I, for your 25th anniversary then. Yeah, wow, yeah. Next, uh, next, next Monday is my uh, is my silver jubilee. I think it's my silver jubilee anniversary. So, wow, this is fortuitous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of perfect. So, um, yeah, it's funny. I Jorg had been making Odevis, uh, and I had tried those and thought they were amazing. I was living in Fremont, which was about twenty minutes away from Alameda, and uh, and I had a small still set up in my garage. And I was making whiskey, mm -hmm. worked at a brew pub. I was bringing different beers home and seeing what those different beer styles would do as, as distillates as I was learning about distilling um, and just learning by doing and realized that this is something that I really enjoyed. I wanted to do more of, but I didn't want to be a moonshiner. Uh, didn't want to go to prison. <laughs> and, and so I, uh, I went and knocked on the door at St. George Spirits and, uh, and made an appointment to talk with Jorg and showed up with a bottle of my homemade whiskey. And uh, we sat and we chatted for a while. He finally poured some of it, smelled it, tasted it, called it inoffensive, which broke my heart. Uh, but I found out after, after about a year of working with him that inoffensive is high praise from York. Um, and uh, God, you know, it was, it was amazing from the very beginning because York gave me a lot of autonomy. Um, there was there was some training in there, but it was you know once once he showed me how to operate the still and we were distilling something like like cherries. It's like okay, finish this batch out, <laughs> and it was you know a, a five thousand gallon tank of fermented cherries that I needed to go to town on. So it was a, a week of distilling, and I was in there just just me and two stills and five thousand gallons of fermented cherries and and my thoughts. And so it was, uh, it was actually a lot of fun and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of great learning on that. And it went from one thing to another, uh, from, from uh, cherries to raspberries to pears. And then once that fruit season was over, 
there was a very, very long period of the year that we referred to lovingly as the off season. Uh, and during the off season, we would bottle stuff primarily for European shipments because we didn't sell very much in the U.S. Um, and uh, once in a while, I'd work with some of our U.S. distributors, uh, primarily the, the Henry Wine Group, who was our distributor in California. And then, uh, and then we set about to experimenting with whiskeys and figuring out exactly what the grain bill uh, would be for our whiskey and started laying whiskey down. So that was, that was the beginning. And then uh, as... As we went from there, uh, as we're going into um, several years of, of laying down whiskey, uh, we got to the point where I started taking whiskey out into the marketplace with some of our salespeople or that weren't ours, but our, our distributors salespeople. Um, it was, there were only two people working at the distillery. It was me and Jorg. Uh, and Jorg would come in maybe one day a week. Uh, the rest of the time he was handling all the, um, accounts receivable and accounts payable from his home office and playing tennis and golf and bridge and generally leading a fairly good life. Uh, and uh, one of the times that I was out with folks from the Henry Wine Group, I was up in uh, St. Helena and I, I walked into this bar to talk to people about Eau de Vise and I see these table tents with all these cocktails made from flavored vodkas. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I start, I start looking at them. And I, I asked to try some of these. Uh, I asked for, uh, uh, I, won't, I won't name the brand, but it was, uh, it was a, a very, very large brand that was making an orange flavored vodka. And I smelled it and it was a very, it was like orange, like orange furniture polish. Uh, and uh, a lot of bad ethanol pouring through uh, predominantly. Tasting it, bad ethanol first with this weird chemical aftertaste. And I went back to the distillery and I said to Jorg, hey, the, the market's going crazy with these flavored vodkas. Everybody's drinking this stuff and none of it's good. We're making eau de vies that smell and taste exactly like the fruit that they're supposed to be made from and nobody wants to buy it because nobody can pronounce eau de vie and they don't know what to do with it. What if we start doing the exact same thing that we're doing for, for making eau de vies, but we start doing it with, with fruit that you can't make eau de vie from? and make flavored vodkas from that. And, uh, and Hangar One was born from that ideology. And we had a couple of things that we had already done in that vein as little lab samples on our lab still for fun. Um, and those, uh, the, the Mandarin Blossom was what came from that. And then the Kaffir Lime, because both York and I really enjoy both Thai and uh, Cambodian foods. And Kaffir Lime features prominently into both of those. Uh, and then the Buddhist hand citron uh, popped up from trips to some of uh, the Monterey market. Um, and that's, that's something that really propelled us onto the, uh, into prominence, I guess, onto the, onto the, the national stage for people to know who St. George Spirits was. Uh, oddly enough, there's still people who refer to us as, oh, didn't you used to be Hangar One? Hmm. No, Hangar One is a brand that we made. We're still St. George Spirits. We've always been St. George Spirits. The distillery is St. George Spirits. Hangar One was a brand. Uh, but it, um, I'm thankful that we had it, that we created it, uh, because it is something that um, once it took off and the business started making money, Jorg gave me the opportunity to become a partner in the business. Um, and uh, I became a partner at the point that Hangar One started to take off. And then when we sold it, um, it allowed me to be able to buy out the rest of his shares. Uh, what was that? I think that was about 11 years ago uh, and take over the business. And 
um, and basically lose the rest of my hair and have all this stuff on my face turn gray because of all the stress of actually owning the whole business. So, uh, yeah, yeah, be careful what you wish for kids. Right. So when, when hanger one launched was, did you already have any of the whiskey and bottles at that point or, um, the only other product you're really selling was the O to V? Yeah, we had, uh, we had the whiskey and bottles at that point. Uh, and, uh, when we were taking it out and, you know, I, I'm not sure who the audience is going to be for, uh, for, for your podcast here, but if there are other, uh, other craft distillers that are, that are listening to this, be very, very thankful for the time that you're operating in. Uh, back in those days, uh, and I think that it was uh, 21 years ago that we, that we first released the single malt, um, it, was, it was a tough slog. Um, I took it to Whiskey Fest the first year that it was out, and uh and was pouring it and people would walk up to the table oh what is this it's california single malt wait where's it from i said it's california single malt so it's from california oh so it's a bourbon then no it's not a bourbon it's a single malt is it scotch no it's from california and and there was a whole lot of explanation that had to go into it and then finally they're like well how old is it is it it's three years old pass and they'd walk away without even tasting it Fast forward to, to the last Whiskey fest, fest that I went to, which was probably about five, six years ago. Uh, and we had uh, the, the tables that are the most packed are the craft distillers because people are now looking for something new. People's palates are a bit more adventurous at this point. And so what we're, what we're seeing is people starting to, to taste these things. And the, the world of the craft distiller right now is one that has a much more receptive customer base, which is so vitally important. You know, it's, it's great to make something. You want to you wanna make it for yourself to be able to please your own palate. You're not making it uh, to, to, to please the taste of somebody else. Otherwise, it's not your own expression. But, uh, but you do want to be able to get it into other people's mouths so that so that they can have a reaction to it. And, uh, and we're finally at the point where that's taking place. It's a very, very different time now. And I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, I mean, the market had to catch up with you. I mean, and, and you probably heard that about a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, not even just within distilling, but entrepreneurship, people are always like, well, it was ahead of its time. And then, you know, that they didn't succeed, but at least you were able to kind of, still stay in business, stick around and, and wait for the market to catch up to you. Because um, I think that that's, um, you know, it really was ahead of it. Because now single mall, American single mall is a category into itself. I mean, it's not bourbon sized, but it's still, it's growing a lot of great people that are that are doing really good stuff. And, and also, if you're talking about 21 years ago, nobody was really savvy about whiskey then. Um, it was right when spirits started to pick up again you know, and start taking market share from beer. And, and, you know, I think all anyone really knew here was the big bourbon. You had your Scotch fans. Again, like you said, they were three years old. They were probably used to drinking a Macallan 12. So, oh, I'm not touching anything that's younger than 12, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and when you're at Whiskey Fest, you've got all these incredible rare expressions that um, when you paid for the ticket to enter, you, you, have the opportunity to taste absolutely everything that's there. So there are some things that you wouldn't be able to afford if you were to go to a bar and, and drink it. And so you're going to try and hit all the most expensive things first to get yeah. your money's worth out of that ticket. So, but yeah, I, uh, to, 
to come back to what you were saying about where we are now with American single malt as a category, uh, one, when we, when we applied for label approval, um, the TTB was incredibly confused about what we were trying to do because we were an American distillery that was making a single malt and single malt was not a, a type and class category for uh, spirit made in the United States. And uh, I think the very first label approval that we got, they sent it back to us saying that it was a bourbon, even though there was no corn in it and we were using used barrels. Uh, so it was, it was a very confusing thing to happen. And it's one of the reasons that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the work that the uh, American Single Malt Council is, is doing to try and codify what's going on with American single malts. I think it's, uh, I think I, I was reluctant for a long time because I really felt like uh, we needed a little bit more Wild West for a while so that mm -hmm. people could experiment more. But uh, they convinced me of the error of my ways and I, I do believe that they're doing uh, very, very good work now to make sure that things stay uh, clean and above board for, and, for, and protecting the consumer, protecting the consumer as well as the category of American single malt which is so the, vitally important. So the TTB, they labeled it bourbon when it didn't even fit their own rules for what bourbon was. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in their defense, there are a lot of things going on out there and it's very difficult for them to stay on top of all of them. Uh, and, and at that time, they were also trying to handle firearms. They were, they were the ATF back then. Right, so yeah. uh, you're, you're dealing with explosives and firearms and booze, which it's a lot of fun and it's very distracting. So uh, getting it all dialed in just the right way is not the easiest thing in the world. And um, at what point, you were, I believe, the first distiller in the U.S. to make a legal absinthe, correct? That is totally correct. Yeah. And tell me, if I, I, you know, I, you told me this story once before, but, um, you know, for this audience, I just, I kind of want to hear, you know, I know people were lining up for it. Obviously, people still had sort of misconceptions about what absinthe was, the whole hallucinogenic thing, and a lot of people were doing it because they thought it was going to give them some sort of weird, trippy sensation. And, um, like, what was that like? then I believe it was like 2007 2008 and then yeah it was and then like what's I mean how how would you say the the absinthe market now has kind of developed with like craft absinthe that are that are around I mean, it's not like I wouldn't call it explosive but there are a good number of them out there now yeah and and yeah we go back to 2007 uh, which it's it's kind of crazy to think it was it was 2007 December 21st 2007 is the day that we released our absinthe. Um, I think that we had bottled 1,200 bottles, uh, not knowing exactly what the market would do. Uh, and the the day that we opened up, which I think was a was a Saturday, um, we opened up for for selling that. There was a line. By the time I got to work, there was a line stretching from the front of the tasting room and wrapping around the parking lot and going out the gate of the building. Um, and, uh, I had one set of former in-laws in line. I had my high school English teacher in line. Uh, it was incredible. There were two helicopters circling the parking lot, filming it because the, the legal sale of an American absinthe was, I guess, newsworthy. Um, and it was, it was difficult for me because I spent a lot of time talking to people in the lines about no, this will not make you hallucinated. That's why you're buying this. You should step out of line now and go home mm -hmm. because you're going to be disappointed. 
This will not do that. The reason that you buy absinthe is because it's layered and interesting and beautiful and something enjoyable to drink, not because it's gonna it's gonna make you trip balls. Uh, and so I uh, nobody turned around to leave, and and we poured it for people to taste, even though we didn't have to to be able to sell it. Um, we could have we could have sold even more if we hadn't been pouring bottles for for samples. But I wanted people to know what they were in for. I wanted people to be able to taste this stuff, uh, and it was totally insane. There was uh, we didn't have a limit on the number of bottles that you could buy, and there were people who bought multiple cases. Who the next day after we had sold out, we sold out early that day uh, before our line was even finished, um, and the next day I saw one of those guys who had bought multiple cases in the parking lot selling the bottles for a 400% markup. Are you serious? Wow. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, kick, obviously kicked him out of the parking lot. Of course. <laughs> uh, and, and said, you know, that's it's totally against the law. You're not going to do it on our property. Um, after that, um, absinthe calmed down quite a bit. Uh, as soon as people realized that they weren't going to hallucinate from it, uh, but the market has come back to, to those heady early days. Uh, our sales numbers are what they were right after absinthe was, after the ban was lifted. Uh, and I think it's based on the fact that they're, people are looking for a quality absinthe. They're looking for something that's really, really tasty. And they want it for, for their cocktails. They want it for, for just sipping on. Um, and there are a handful of fantastic ones out there. Uh, I think all the stuff from uh, Delaware Phoenix uh, is really, that's uh, upstate New York one. Uh, have you tried them? Mm, I don't think so, no. Um, phenomenal, really, really delicious. Uh, and, uh, and uh, of course, Leopold Brothers, uh, there's, this, there's this really great too. Uh, but, but ours is doing super, super well on the market. Uh, it's, it's still my favorite. Uh, it's nice to step out and try somebody else's once in a while, but ours is definitely our favorite. So, um, so uh, let's let's talk about uh, you know the distillery location. Um, you were sort of a pioneer in that old naval area there <laughs> that has now been developed into kind of a little scene. So, sort of tell us how you've you've you know kind of when you first moved there and and how you've sort of witnessed it, everything sort of grow around you there. Yeah. So uh, when shortly after we started Hangar One, which, you know, we were, we were down the street from a hangar. We weren't actually in a hangar when we started Hangar One. And, um, and it started to grow so quickly that we, we were running out of space. Uh, we would bottle a batch of hangar and we couldn't do anything until it all shipped out because there was no room. We were in 5,000 square feet. And we needed a, we needed more space, and we ended up moving, uh, looking around first, and uh, some friends showed us the hangar, and it was sort of like uh, Ghostbusters. Uh, mm. I'm looking around, I'm like, absolutely no way, this is way too much. And Jord looks at it, and he's like, when can we move in? And it's crazy because he's usually the one who's sensible, and I'm the one who's the idiot. And uh, and about two weeks later, we were starting to move into that space. Um, took some time to, to get it all cleaned up and get everything uh, set up for, for receiving stills and tanks and all that. Uh, but it was a ghost town. There was nobody else out there. You have these buildings that are 65,000 square feet. They're massive. They're 
it's going to going to take somebody with fairly specialized needs to fill a building like that. And, uh, and so it took a long time for people to move in, but slowly we started to get these amazing neighbors. Like we've got faction directly to the South of us. Uh, when uh, the Rosenblum family sold Rosenblum to Diageo, I think they ended up starting Rockwall just down from us as well. Uh, there are a couple other small wineries that have started up there. And now even more excitingly, we've got, uh, we've got Admiral Malting and Almanac Brewing just around the corner. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really, really fun neighborhood. Uh, the city, the city, uh, gave the street a nickname, uh, Spirits Alley. Uh, even though we're the only actual spirits producer on the row, uh, it's, it's still, we'll, we'll let them have that. Uh, it's, well, you were the it's first ones in there, so they're being deferential to you. <laughs> and the view out to the Francisco, there you go. I, uh, very, very happy. I'll take it. So. Um, and I heard they're, they're putting in a new ferry dock there too from San Francisco. Yeah, there's, so there's, there's one that's on the estuary right now that's maybe, uh, I don't know, uh, half a mile away from us. They're putting another one in, uh, in the old seaplane lagoon. So that, uh, and, and there will be, uh, there's going to be a bunch of townhomes around that seaplane lagoon. So it'll, it'll definitely help to service those and give uh, greater value to the places that are out on that seaplane lagoon. So that'll be exciting too. And, and what's the what's the status of your tasting room right now? Are you in any stage of being open, or are you still closed? No, no, we're still closed. I, um, you know, with with all the COVID restrictions that are going on, there's there's really no way to do the the style of tasting that we would want to do. Um, you know, tasting's not just the utility of pouring something into a glass and letting somebody smell and taste it. There's a there's a measure of hospitality that needs to be included with that. And right now, you can't have hospitality inside, uh, inside a, a sterile bubble. Um, it just doesn't feel right. And so we're going to wait until everything's all clear, and then we'll open back up with a bang. It'll be the roaring 20s for us at that point. But until then, uh, the safety of our team and the safety of the, the customers that love us enough to want to come and visit are, are far more important than actually operating a tasting room. Best case scenario, when do you think that'll be? Best case scenario, uh, I, I've got my fingers crossed for end of summer, mm. uh, but I think it's it's more likely 2022. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, I, I I I'm resetting all my hopes and expectations because when this whole thing started off, um, when when we got the news that we had shelter in place in California, um, Dave and I looked at each other and said, "This is cool. We'll send everybody else home." We'll run the stills for a bit. It'll be like the olden days. Uh, we'll fire up the stills. We'll play some Halo in the lab uh, and, and go back and forth. And just it'll be like vacation for a couple weeks. And then after two weeks, this whole thing will blow over and we'll back to normal. Um, and so I'm very, very cautious now with my hopes and expectations yes. about when everything's going to lift. I've, I've fooled myself too many times about it. After a quick break, Lance talks about St. George's line of gins. This podcast is a production of the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine. ACSA is the only registered national nonprofit trade group representing the U.S. craft spirits industry. Through conventions, webinars, publications, competitions, special programs, and more, it's our mission to elevate and advocate for the community of craft spirits producers. Learn more at AmericanCraftSpirits.org.
Craft Spirits Magazine is the unparalleled resource for in-depth insight and intelligence for the entire Craft Spirits universe. The bi-monthly digital magazine features the information and analysis that small, independent spirits producers and allied businesses need to operate in today's complex craft beverage market. To see our latest issue and subscribe for free, visit craftspiritsmag.com. Soon after Winters assumed primary ownership of St. George, the distillery's next major success wasn't a whiskey, vodka, or brandy, but an aromatic gin. First released in 2011, along with Botanivore and Dry Rye Gin, Terroir Gin was crafted to evoke a sense of California, specifically the Bay Area's parks. Jeff asked Lance if he's starting to see the market catch up with them. And by the way, when you hear Lance mention Dave, he's referring to Dave Smith, St. George's head distiller and vice president. Um, you know, we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing some people that are uh, being a little bit more fearless in their expressions. Uh, which I think is is really strong and really good, um, but uh, you know the the ability to do that has always always been out there for everybody. Uh, I feel like uh, I feel like both Hendrix and Nolets helped to give us the um, the I guess the courage to be able to to step outside the box and to understand that gin can be so much more than just the standard. London dry um, and and yeah I think we are seeing we're seeing some people doing that um, I'm still surprised to see how many people are just making a London dry style mm-hmm. uh, and it's like what how how are you intending to set yourself apart is it because yours is the the Detroit London dry uh, and and that one's a, a, a an Austin London dry and that one's whatever I I don't think I don't think that being local should be enough to convince people to buy your product. Um, there's, you know, I, I, I want to drink good. I want to drink the best that I can drink. Um, you know, there, there are local things that I wouldn't ever touch mm-hmm. uh, because there are so much better options and, and life is way too short to not have the best of what you can have. So uh, if somebody's buying our stuff just because it's local, um, I'd rather they were buying something that they liked more. I want them buying it because it tastes like nothing else. Mm-hmm. And I, my hope is that um, other craft distillers that are out there are making stuff because they have something to say. They have something new to express, not because they, they say, this is a category that works. This is a flavor profile that's safe. I'm going to jump into that safe profile. You know, get out there and express yourself and do something new and, and do something, something that's you. Uh, that's the important thing. Um, and, uh, and for us, the terroir was definitely the jumping off point for that. Um, you know, it, and initially when, when I conceived of the terroir, it wasn't even a gin. It was just, it was an eau de vie that was going to smell like the Bay Area Hills. And it wasn't until I started thinking about, well, what would we do if we were doing a gin? And I connected those two thoughts in my feverish little brain, uh, and, and thought, hey, that's a really interesting profile for a gin is something that's super foresty. Um, and, and then on the way to completing that one, coming up with uh, all the different botanicals and, and basically auditioning all the different botanicals that we wanted, we found a number of them that were fantastic, but that didn't really fit the profile of terroir. 
uh, and we created Botanivore to be the home for all of those botanicals. Um, and then uh, just, to, just to be able to see what we could do by shifting the base instead of all the botanicals, uh, the, the dry rye was born. So three very, very different expressions of what a gin can be from one single house. Um, and, and then of course, Dave, Dave went and fucked up and put uh, some of the dry rye in a barrel. Uh, Dave, uh, uh, as Dave likes to say, that's one of the many times that he escaped being fired that he should have been fired. Uh, and, uh, and the dry rye reposado was born and it's, it's great. It, uh, it's, it's really fantastic. So I'm, I'm actually validated in not having fired him. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a tasty, tasty sipping gin. But uh, the terroir is still my favorite. I was actually at three in the morning this morning. Uh, I was awake for no good reason. But as I was awake, I was thinking, God, I haven't had a terroir martini in way too long. Uh, and I, I just simply love me a terroir martini. And, um, and I know we've talked about this before, but have you come around ever since the, the Ray Posado? Do you, are you still as rigid about your... Uh, assertion that you know you want gin to kind of be refreshing you don't want it to necessarily have those elements of the bar barrel or or has um the reposada kind of brought you across the line a little bit on that no it hasn't it's uh <laughs> it 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 is anomalous and it's anomalous because of the fact that it's it's got a whiskey base uh and so the barrel aging profile on a whiskey based gin is is a sensible thing but when you're talking about I, would would i barrel age the botanivore no uh terroir absolutely not um so yeah it, it it hasn't it hasn't shifted my ideas on that at all uh it it shifted my idea that we could do that with with dry rye but that's as far as i'm going to go on that one i mean i guess it's like uh, you know it's it's sort of like uh it kind of falls on that sort of traditional, almost Geneva kind of profile anyway, which is halfway to a whiskey to begin with. So. There you go. There you go. Um, and um, it actually it reminded me of uh, kind of going back to the don't just lean on local part of things. It reminds me of a story that I tell uh, a friend and I, another journalist, we visited a new distillery. I'm not going to say where this was probably eight years ago now. Um, but um, they were new at the time and they were a rum distillery and um, they were tasting us through their stuff. And then uh, he kept asking them, so what, what sets this apart from Bacardi? Like how, what's different than Bacardi? And, and the only answer they had for us is like, well, we taste every batch. That was their, like, <laughs> well, so does Bacardi. They have a lot more people tasting it, but I mean, it's... <laughs> They have yeah. the infrastructure to have a lot of people taste it, and you think that they're just bottling it, throwing caution to the wind. <laughs> yeah, and the, the the things that the things that people latch on to 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 say that this is their point of differentiation, uh, it's it's like they've never actually gone out in the world. Um, it's I think it's part of the hardest learning curve for a lot of new distillers is is really understanding. You have to understand the craft. And you have to be willing to make a lot of mistakes before you actually put a product out. Um, and, and if you're making mistakes, it's because you're trying things that somebody else hasn't tried. And, and so hopefully you're going to be able to find something that's a, a, a new, weird, unique sort of expression of, uh, of a tired old category. 
that's the job of craft distillers is to breathe new life into these old categories these these old stayed tried and true things a lot of them are really great uh and 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 they've become these stalwart traditions but at one point they were bold and innovative you know at the very beginning of their history at the very beginning of, of his history jack daniels was bold and innovative mm. right and and somebody who copied something that's been done for a hundred years, or do you want to be somebody who's, who's creating something that will be copied a hundred years from now? Um, and that's, that's, I think what the, the craft distillers of today need to be asking themselves. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I've, I've seen a lot of innovation out there and it, it is, you know, you know, the ones that are going to be around and you know, the ones that aren't going to be around. And I think you kind of get a sense for that. And I think the ones that aren't going to be around can learn a thing or two from the ones that are going to be around. So absolutely not to mention, yeah. you know, learning from people like you who've been around. Um, so are you still doing, uh, you're doing that sort of one-off show too for the ramen shop. You're still making it. Yeah, we sure are. Uh, and, uh, and we're, we've, we've been making bigger and bigger batches uh so that it can go out to more spots uh and a big part of that is so that we can make umeshu um mm. we've got access to california grown ume fruit that we're we're making umeshu with um and we have to make the umeshu so that we can barrel that so that we've got barrels to finish the baller whiskey in and so it's the <laughs> going all the way back to the the shochu the a big part for a big part of the reason for us to continue doing the the shochu is so that the baller program can continue moving forward and growing uh which which it has done uh that one started as something that we were doing just for the ramen shop as well mm -hmm. uh and i think we were doing about 50 cases a year initially for the ramen shop um we've grown it now to the point where uh in in this this the last rolling 12 months it's been um i think 3000 cases oh wow uh and in the next rolling 12 months it'll be 6000 cases so it's it's got some life it's got uh, got got some momentum going what was the base for that were you using barley or rice or it's barley uh it's uh it's predominantly just regular two row pale uh, and there's a, a good dose, about 10% of uh, Munich malt to give just a, a little bit more toast level to it. Uh, get a little bit, a touch more maltiness, but not, not so much like the multiple roast levels that we see in the single malt, um, because we want this to be a little bit leaner, a little bit more moist, a little bit more austere. After a final break, Lance talks about a fun side project this podcast is a production of the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine. ACSA is the only registered national nonprofit trade group representing the U.S. craft spirits industry. Through conventions, webinars, publications, competitions, special programs, and more, it's our mission to elevate and advocate for the community of craft spirits producers. Learn more at AmericanCraftSpirits.org. Craft Spirits Magazine is the unparalleled resource for in-depth insight and intelligence for the entire Craft Spirits universe. The bi-monthly digital magazine features the information and analysis that small, independent spirits producers and allied businesses need to operate in today's complex craft beverage market. To see our latest issue and subscribe for free, 
visit craftspiritsmag.com. At the distillery in St. George, beyond the stills and a sea of barrels, Lance has a letterpress shop. I started falling in love with, I've always loved paper ephemera, uh, really cool printed matter. Um, I'm, I'm always blown away by it. And as I started reading about how a lot of it was produced, I started reading about letterpress. I start seeing these letterpress machines and like, these are so cool. And, uh, and you know what happens when you start reading about something on the internet, you start seeing places that are selling those things on the internet. And I found some people on Craigslist that were selling letterpress equipment. Uh, one of them was a guy uh, by the name of Glenn Bowder, who up in Napa had an old barn with a whole bunch of equipment. And I bought my first letterpress, which was a Chandler and Price new style uh, and started playing around with that and then started getting cabinets of lead type and then picked up a, a, a Vandercook 219 proofing press and then a knife cutting mill and uh, and, and, and all the composing tables, composing sticks, everything. And, and then once you've got all these tools, you start figuring out things to do with them. So, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of playing around with that. The first two labels for two rums are two, uh, are, are unaged agricole and are aged. The first two labels were printed on the, uh, the Chandler and Price. Um, the first labels for the shochu were printed on the Vandercook 219 because it's much better at, uh, at multiple passes. It can, it can hold registration a lot better. Um, but yeah, it's, they're a lot of fun and they're beautiful little machines. And what's great about them is that these are things that somebody designed using paper and pens and protractors and slide rules no computers no cad programs none of that they designed those and then somebody built it by hand and a hundred years later in some instances 150 years later these things are still working like champs uh just the way that they were designed to do when they were first built so it's uh it's a pleasure and an honor to be able to use a piece of equipment like that it's kind of like old um old homes too like they don't make them like they used to but they they kind of last a really long time like the houses that are being built now it's like they're not meant to last more than 20 30 years i don't think yeah you find an old enough house you find two by fours in it that are actually two inches by four inches (laughs) that's crazy um the other thing that i love about uh about the letterpress is that it's it's very time consuming and because of the fact that it's time consuming it forces you to be much more thoughtful about your actions. And so as, you know, you're, as you're typesetting something that you've written, you're sitting there and staring for a long time as you're amassing letters on a composing stick, you're staring at your words for a long time. And then when you press it and you have to check and make sure that you've minded your P's and Q's, you don't have those backwards. Uh, and, and so you go through and you proofread multiple times. And so, um, you really get a better sense and a better opportunity to make sure that you're saying exactly what you mean. You know, it's interesting because I made like a similar sort of parallel to, um, you know, a year and a half ago, I, I finally got bit by the vinyl record bug. Um, uh-huh. You know, I started, you know, I had some old from my old collection from like the eighties um, and even some from the seventies, but then I started buying new ones again. Um, I always felt like I was going to get drawn into this hipster world, but I realized that very similarly, I find that it 
makes me think about the music more, brings me more of a connection with the music than any digital format ever has. And, you know, it's, it's just sort of that, um, I don't know, it just, it just brings an extra level of thoughtfulness to it. And I think that's very similar to something like that, where, you know, it kind of makes me realize I might be sort of an analog person at heart and I didn't realize it. You know, I think we probably all are. There's, uh, there's an appeal to the convenience of being able to grab your phone, push a button, the song comes out, of, comes out of the wall somewhere. Yeah. But, but pulling a record out of a sleeve, looking at it to make sure that it doesn't have dust on it, if it does, wiping it clean, and then, and then gently setting it on the spindle, gently setting the needle down on it. Um, it's so intentional. And, and you're engaged in a process instead it's of a ritual, just, really, yeah. it's totally, it's, it's like, you know, you can, you can grab a tea bag and drop it in a, a, a cup of water that you microwaved, mm -hmm. or you could go through a Japanese tea service. And, and again, it's, it's engagement and intentionality and it makes, it makes the end product that much more meaningful, which I think kind of comes around full circle to what, uh, what craft distilling is all about too, is that, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot more work that goes into doing what we do, but I, I, I can say for myself, I don't do this just for an end product. I do it because I love doing the deed. Um, actually making this stuff is fun from, from the smell of a mash, which is an amazing smell. I'll never get tired of that to the smell of the distillate and the first taste of the distillate when it comes over, it makes my eyes roll back in my head. Uh, and then being able to check on it as it sits in barrel and see how it changes. It's all so engaging and it's all so rewarding. And it's, it's the process. It's the, it's the journey, not the destination. That's super important in what we do. And we just totally. love it. And, you know, of the, uh, you know, kind of switching again, uh, of the Odevis pear is the only one you're making right now. Is that correct? Or? No, we make the we make the raspberry as well. Oh, you make the raspberry as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And and, um, and that, that yeah, year round or is that just a seasonal thing? They're they're both available year round. Okay. Yeah. And um, I guess I wanted to kind of go into trends now, just some sort of thirty thousand feet analysis of what what trends you you like seeing develop in spirits that are happening now in, in craft spirits and what trends are you not a big fan of? Wow. Um, it's okay. This is going to be a tough one to answer because of the fact that uh, I feel like I've been a hermit for the last 10 months. And so I don't know what trends are actually out there. You can base um, it on 2019 if you want. <laughs> if I, if that, that, that presumes that I can remember 2019. Um, but uh you know, um, I, I think the trend of craft distillers playing music to their barrels can uh, can go away. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's something that I've always thought. Yeah, you know, that's it's cute. But once one person did it and said that they did it, uh, it's it's time to stop. It doesn't do anything for it. Uh, I, I I also think the the trend of looking for rapid aging techniques. Let it go. Um, they, I, spirits should be good, uh, fresh off the still. Um, 
And if they're not good enough to drink fresh off the stove, they, they probably don't deserve a decent barrel. Um, and, uh, and the corollary to that is that something that's actually barrel aged in a real barrel, oh, hey, that, that's, there's another trend, tiny barrels, go the fuck away, tiny barrels. Uh, I, I, uh, I do not like the over extraction and I don't think anybody likes drinking a sawmill. And that's exactly what it tastes like when you're drinking something that comes out of a tiny barrel. Um, go with a full size barrel and, and let it age. And if you can't let it age, pull it out early. That's fine. Just make it good enough that you can pull it out early. Um, you know, I, I've, I've had whiskeys that have sat for, for two years in a full size 53 gallon charred American oak barrel. And there's a ton of character that they pick up from that, uh, but it's not overly oaked. Um, and sometimes if I, if I was to leave it in longer than that in a 53 gallon barrel, it would become overly oaked. And, and that's really something that I think should be a trend is balance. Um, not enough, not enough people understand that, that balance with an aged spirit, the balance between the base spirit and what your intention was as a distiller and the, and the aged spirit, what comes out of that barrel, those need to, those need to line up a little better. Um, Trends that I'm seeing that uh, that I approve of. I, again, more people stepping out and trying things that are are new, that are edgy. Um, I've I, I've seen some oddball Odevies even, which I'm uh, I was amazed by. I'm trying to remember who it was. There was somebody that put out uh, a mango Odevie, um, and um, I think I know. It, was, it, was it the uh... Can't remember the name of the distillery now. Are they they in Chicago? Um, I think they might be. The, and the the label is uh, is like the color of mango flesh, uh, which which makes perfect sense. Uh, but but having people do that, that's really cool. I, uh, you know, trying different things like that. That's what I'm loving. Uh, the the trend for for more people making Amari in the United States. Um, you know, we're we tend to be a culture that leans heavily towards sweet flavors. Uh, so anytime people are pumping out the bitter flavors, more power to them. Uh, it's something that most Americans don't come to easily. And so uh, I, I, I love things like that, that, that buck what would be the, the sort of common wisdom. Why are you making a bitter thing in America? Because they're delicious. And people have to learn. And that's, you know, that's sort of what St. George Spirits has been up against for 39 years now is having to teach people because 39 years ago when we started, spirits were the sort of things that when you put, when you would drink them, you were drinking them in a cocktail. What was the job of the cocktail? To hide the spirit. And you don't want to be a craft distiller if your product is going to be hidden. That's the, the broader trend that's helped elevate all of us over the last 39 years is that there have been more and more people leaning on uh, spirit-forward cocktails. And in a spirit-forward cocktail, that base spirit's got nowhere to hide, and so it's got to be better. And so it's, it's created a world that is ready for people to be making better spirits. So um, that's me dancing all around your question and, and answering it at the same time. Ryan Hall was the name of the distillery. That's it, Ryan Hall. Nice yeah. work. Well, I just Googled it while I, or because I, I put in, <laughs> but I was right. They're in Chicago. So <laughs> good work. Um, Cause you just mentioned, you know, 39 years, you're going to, you planning anything for the 40th, the distillery next year. I mean, um, assuming that things are back to semi-normal. 
Yeah, I'm I, I trying to figure that out. I, um, we definitely want to. I don't know what it is, though. Um, we don't have anything that's 40 years old. Mm. And the last, uh, the last few milestone anniversaries, we bottled up special blends of single malt whiskey uh, for our 30th and 35th. Um, there's a good chance that we'll do something like that again. Um, I'm going to dig through some of the barrels and see what we have. I think we've got some, uh, some nice barrel-aged pear brandy as well. That, uh, that works nicely. So we'll, we'll check, uh, check and see that. And I think that because of the connection to our roots on that pear brandy, that would be a, a real interesting way to go. But we'll, we'll figure something out. I just don't know what it is just yet. What about your personal 25th? Are you going to do any special releases for that? No, I, uh, it, it, there's, there's no way to get anything together before then. Uh, but, uh, but watch my Instagram. I'll, I, I, I'm, I, I've never actually done an Instagram story. I think I've been on Instagram for two years and I've posted 12 times. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm going uh, to try and go big for, uh, for next Monday. So uh, it'll be, it'll be uh, a tearjerker, I'm sure, with mm-hmm. lots of pictures of me back when I had hair. Uh, and, uh, and my facial hair was actually red, not white. So, uh, it'll, it'll be a blast from the past. And, um, anything that you're working on, that's a secret that you can give us a little peek into. (laughs) Yeah. A secret that, that, you know, uh, just as long as everybody, uh, listening to your podcast, as long as, uh, have them all sign an NDA. Yeah. They can all (laughs) keep a secret as well. Uh, there are a handful of things that, uh, that we're working on. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, in the RTD category, actually. Oh. Uh, that's, that's a big thing. And with, uh, with both, I've got a Negroni at work that I absolutely love. And when I love something, I want everybody else in the world to try it, to see if they love it. Uh, and it's the, it's terroir and Bruto, uh, and those two together in a Negroni are just incredible. They're dynamite. Um, so, and, uh, and then uh, Bruto and soda in a can just seems like a, a kind of a natural. Um, so we'll, we'll play around with a few of those things and, uh, and really thinking about busting out another whiskey. I, uh, I've played with rye whiskeys for a while now and I, um, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking there's a rye whiskey in our future. So. Very cool. Well, you hear you heard it here first, folks. Yes, you did. So try to keep a secret, all of you out there. Yeah, please. <laughs> Don't make me come after you. That's our program for today. Thanks again to Lance Winters for chatting. You can learn more about St. George Spirits at stgeorgespirits.com. And you can follow them on social media. They're at St. George Spirits on Twitter and Instagram. And Lance is at lance.winters on Instagram. We'll be back in a few weeks to chat with Rob Campbell of Wisconsin-based Dog and Shrub Distillery, which opened its doors just a few months after the start of the pandemic. Until then, thanks for listening, and cheers! Cheers!